looking at our world from a theological perspective. This is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Tuesday, August the 23rd, 2022. It is currently 10, 12 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central Studios located right here in Abilene, Texas. And well, this first live broadcast of the day, it's going to start off a little strange, but 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 don't don't immediately, you know, close this out, don't immediately stop it. Just just stay with me because I think it's an important discussion. Even though it's going to sound weird, it's going to sound strange. But listen, all right, are you ready? Let's talk about zombies. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about zombies. I mean, movies are filled with zombies, books, TV shows, comic books. I mean, zombies have been around within popular culture for a very long time. And whenever we think about a zombie, we think about something that is, it's not truly dead, but it's not truly alive. I mean, it's there, it's moving so it's not dead, but at the same time, it's it, it, that's it, that's not really alive. It's kind of in this in between. It's not dead, but it's not alive. Zombies. Do you believe that the church that the church maybe without even trying unintentionally has created? A zombie. It's not truly dead. It's not truly alive. Now, I'm not referring to the church itself. I'm not even referring to people. I'm referring to something else. Has the church inadvertently created a zombie? And I'm not going to define yet what this zombie is. What we're going to do is we're going to go back to what I heard around 4 a.m. this morning from the Economist podcast. The Economist podcast. At about 4 a.m., I was listening to The Economist podcast because that's what normal people listen to at 4 a.m. But a new episode dropped, and I made it 19 minutes and 8 seconds into The Economist podcast. And most of the other things are being talked about in other podcasts. And then all of a sudden, at the 19-minute, 8-second mark, 19 minutes and 8 seconds, well, in a sense, they kind of started talking about Zombies. This is what I heard. Minority languages are often neither dead nor fully alive. Minority languages are often neither dead nor alive. Like a zombie, sometimes we could we could refer to some minority languages as zombie languages. Now, I know zombie languages, I think, actually refers to something dealing with language written for computers and, and things like that. It has more of a, it, it, I think it's used more in the world of technology, but just consider languages, languages. And there are many languages out there that they're not truly dead, but they're not truly alive. Now, now, what does it have to do with the church? Well, let's at least listen to a little bit more of this. But that immediately when I heard that around 4 a.m., I kind of set up and go, oh, wow, that's that's I like that. I, a minority language. It's neither dead. It's 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 not it's neither alive. OK, and immediately I started thinking of Christianity. 
I know that's how everyone else thinks. Maybe you don't know which direction I'm going to go. Just stay with me. Let's listen to just a little bit more of this. Spoken by a small number of people, they are at risk of fading away. Think of Scott's Gaelic. Spoken here by Rosemary for Wikitongues, a nonprofit that keeps a record of endangered languages. Or Gallo, a Romance language native to Eastern Brittany, spoken here by Toen. Despite activist efforts, these languages are neither widely spoken nor used. But things look rosier for one minority language spoken in northern Spain. Sartu, Espainia aldeko Euskal Herrian eta bapatean ematen du ez zaudela beste herrialde batean, baizik eta beste kontinente batean. Basque is one of the only non-Indo-European languages in Europe, which means it's been there for thousands of years, since well before the invasion of the Indo-European languages, which include almost every other one in Europe a few thousand years ago. Lane Green is The Economist's language columnist and Spain correspondent. Its structure, its grammar, its vocabulary are all completely distinct from those of its neighbors. There have been attempts to try to connect it to other languages, some as distant as things like the Caucasian languages around Georgia and Armenia and Azerbaijan, but it has no known proven relatives anywhere in the world. How was it able to survive when, when other languages did not? Well, the Basque territory is quite mountainous. It's, it's high mountains and then river valleys in which most people lived and held small farms. In other words, it's pretty inhospitable territory. A lot of invaders have either just not bothered or have gone right on by it. So the Basques have been hanging out there and not been assimilated into the neighboring populations all this time. What has So here's this language, right, that's in a region and no one has invaded it. No one has has, has kind of connected it. So the language, in a sense, it's not really alive because such a small minority uses it. It's not really dead because it's still being used. It's a zombie language. And this morning when I heard that, I'm like, the church has created zombie languages. Whether we've tried or not, the church has been guilty in a sense of creating zombie language because there's there's language of the church. It's not truly dead because some people use it, but by no means is it truly alive. Zombie language in the church. And it should not be that way. Let me be very specific so that you understand what I'm trying to do with this illustration. In many churches, if you stand behind the pulpit and you start talking about things in church history, maybe you start talking about the seven ecumenical councils, a lot of the people sitting there, you're speaking a language they don't understand. They don't even know. Seven ecumenical councils? Wait, what are you talking? You start naming some of those councils. They don't know the councils. You start talking about some of the decrees from the councils or some of the anathemas from the councils. They don't have no clue what you're talking about. You start reading. So you have you have things from church history that if you start talking about this group of, per, of, of, of people or this movement or this church father or this event, the, the majority of people sitting in the average church 
church will not have a clue what you're talking about. They won't understand it. They can't even compute. There'll be, they may be, if they take notes, they may be back there writing as furiously as they can. And when it's over, they're like, man, I, I didn't really get any of that. I didn't really understand any of that. And you're like, it's, it's the language of church history. How do you not know the language of church history and you've been a Christian 10, 15 years going to church? The church has neglected the language of church history to such a degree that it's become a zombie language. It's neither dead, it's neither alive. Oh, there's some places, maybe in some mountainous region where nobody has bothered to, to you know, conquer it, that they're still using it. But for the most part, many Christians, no clue, no understanding, no connection. And yes, that's me throwing my pencil across the room. No, okay, I'm just, I just set it down. But it bothers me. Why, why is that the case? So there is the language of church history that many people don't know. And we could go through all kinds of examples, but the, the goal this morning is just to kind of throw this idea out there, not to 100% explore every example, okay? So understand what I'm trying to do this morning. So let me ask you, in your Christian life, is the language of church history a zombie language to you? How about in your church? How much time is spent in any serious, significant, meaningful study of anything related to church history? Anything. I think it's a zombie language. Let's let's talk about the language of the creeds and the confessions and the catechisms. Stand behind your pulpit and 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 don't tell people what you're reading. Just start mentioning some of the language and say in the Athanasian Creed, the Athanasian Creed, does people in, church, would your church, people in your church even recognize it? Would they even know that that's the Athanasian Creed? And, and the reason I mention that is in my own church, I believe it was Sunday, I think it was Sunday morning in our study in Jude, I mentioned uh, the, uh, I, I said, name the three major creeds or something like that. Everyone got the apostles of the Nicene and almost everyone drew a blank with the Athanasian Creed. And I was like, what? You guys have been taught the Athanasian Creed. Everyone in the church was handed a small biography of Athanasius. Not that he wrote the Athanasian Creed, but you get the idea that that he, it's named after him for crying out loud. I mean, come on. Like, how do you and but they've they have forgotten it. Why? Because they're not speaking the language. They heard it, but they didn't they didn't go home and I'm gonna study the Athanasian Creed. I'm gonna memorize the Athanasian Creed. The the language of the creeds, the great confessions of faith. The Belgic Confession of Faith. We could go on the the Canons of Dort. We could. There's so many different, so many documents that we can mention that are so significant in well church history. I mean, the the, the great confessions of the faith are greatly connected to church history. Well, if we're not, if we, if the language of church history has become a zombie language, what do you think the language of the great confessions of faith have become? The average Christian is not reading them. They're not studying them, and sadly, they wouldn't even recognize. It's like they would go into a region where someone is speaking a language and like, I'm sorry, I don't understand. I only, I just know English. I just know English, right? Well, guess what? Many Christians are like, I only know modern day evangelicalism. I don't know any of this church history and these doctrinal statements and these theological statements. I don't know that. So we've got a zombie language of church history. We've got a zombie language of the, the, the confessions of faith, the catechisms, the creeds. We've, there's a, it's a zombie language. It's not dead, but it's not truly alive. We've got a zombie language in many churches of just theology. 
Start talking about theological terms, right? And, and talk about, you know, uh, infused righteousness versus imputed righteousness. Talk about sanctification, justification, glorification. Talk about uh, certain hermeneutical uh, concepts. We can just go on and on and on and on and on. You could probably even, for some Christians, even hearing the terms omniscient, omnipotent, even that will confuse them, right? Uh, Omnipresent, they may not even be familiar with that. And you know why some of that has happened? Because pastors would stand behind the pulpit. Oh, well, this is one of those 10 cent theological terms. You don't really need to know the term and almost speak down about that. Or pastors say, I'm no theologian. Well, we're all supposed to be theologians because theology is the study and knowledge of God. Every Christian, every church should be turning out theologians. But the language of theology in many cases is becoming a zombie language. It's not truly dead because there's still some Christians talking it, studying it, and teaching it, but it's not truly alive because the majority don't know it. We've got the zombie language of church history, the zombie language of the language of the confessions, the creeds, and the catechisms. We've got theological, a theological zombie language where Christians don't know theological terms, don't care. I will say we have a zombie language of, uh, and I kind of added hermeneutics into the theological terms, but we have a clear zombie language of hermeneutics, of principles of biblical interpretation. The average Christian doesn't even know that that area of study exists. They don't know it. They don't understand it. We've got to take some of these zombie languages and bring them from this in-between state of not dead, but not alive, and make them fully alive. We've been doing a series on, you know, teaching youth in 2022. Maybe instead of teaching youth about, well, the things we've been listening to from a youth conference that happened this summer, you can go listen to that series. Instead of maybe going that approach, maybe it's time to, I don't know, educate young people who claim to be Christians and things like church history, that'd be crazy. How about things of like the the language of the early church with their confessions and their creeds and their uh, their the uh, catechisms? Yeah, we'll, we'll go with all of that. Maybe we it's time to sort of start treating the young people like they can't. Oh, I get so tired of that. Oh. Mm. The one thing that has bothered me is so many times pastors will hear something that I'm teaching or doing, and I'll get something like, you can't teach your people that. That's too deep. You'll lo-. And I'm like, how dare you tell me the people in my church are too dumb to get it? Because that's what you're saying. You're just using nice language. You, it's, how, how dare you tell me they can't get it? How dare you tell me that? You don't know. And maybe they'll struggle. You know what? I'll bring a ladder and help them climb the ladder until they can get it. Don't tell me young people can't understand th- theology. Don't tell me they can't understand doctrine. Don't, under- don't tell me you can't, they can't understand church history. Don't tell me that all they need is be, to be told not to watch Netflix and listen to rock and roll and dance and, and have sex and do drugs. Tell, tell me the church has to be something more than just a moralistic lesson, even for young people. They need, if they claim to be Christians, they need to be discipled. And they need to know the history of their faith. They need to know the language of their faith. They need to know the theology of their faith. They need to know the interpretive principles and how to interpret the authority of their faith, which is the word of God. Zombie languages. Is there a zombie language in your church? Oh, some of you in the church know it. 
But the majority, no clue, wouldn't even know what you're talking about. What are the zombie languages in your church? What are the zombie languages in your Christian life? Oh, you may know a little bit of it, so it's not truly dead, but it's not truly alive in your life. You're not, you're not able to speak fluently in that language. Now, I've always said this podcast is here to try to help you. So if there is an area where you think, you know, that's kind of a zombie language. I mean, I know of it. I know it exists. I, I think I've heard it spoken a few times, but I don't really know anything about it. All you have to do is email me at newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com and say this. And I will say, okay, let's do what we can to make that zombie language fully alive in your life and in your mind. That's all I have for this first live broadcast. I just wanted to share this thought. It'll be interesting to see what people have to say. Um, I don't typically do super short episodes, but I thought this morning, before I did anything else, I would get right up here and at least share this with you because it's been in my mind since about 4 a.m. As soon as I heard that the language is neither dead nor alive, I'm like, wow, that describes so much of things within Christianity, the zombie languages of Christianity. Church history, the confessions, the creeds, the catechisms, theology, hermeneutics. I could probably add some more. All right. Thanks for listening. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. I'm going to take a little break, and then I will be back, and we will once again go back to Indiana as we are reviewing messages from a youth conference. That was that occurred this summer, and we're trying to figure out what should young people be uh, be taught in the church, and what are they being taught. You can go listen to that entire series. Um, so far, we've done three parts, and uh, we're going to finish up uh, the next. We're going to finish up the sermon that we are currently reviewing, and we'll do that in just a little bit. I'm just going to take a quick break. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.